Next on the SME show, I have the executive director of Unite America, Nick Troiano. And personally, I think he's pretty cool. Take a look. As the executive director of Unite America, Nick Troiano is one who is spearheading change in the American government. Once a Republican and now an independent, Nick seeks out solutions in America's primaries, policies, and politics. You may recognize him from his many appearances on daytime and nighttime talk shows using his platform for the greater good. In my opinion, Nick is a true American hero. He ran for Congress back in 2014, and although he did not win the race, his spirit and support remain strong. Because as he sees it, it's better to light a single candle than curse at the darkness. Welcome to the SME Show, Nick Troiano! Awesome to be with you, Sam. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. You got it. How's the weather in Denver today? Uh, it's, you know, cloudy, not not too nice outside. Yesterday we had a good day, so if I have, like, sunglass... Uh... Oh, wait, hold on, me too. I actually had to put some makeup on. There's a line right here for my glasses. That is so funny. I was like, I cannot <laughs> go on camera looking like that. Um, so for the people at home who don't know who you are, in your own words, who is Nick Troiano? Uh, that's a good question. I am uh, a young 30-something living in Denver trying to make a positive mark on the world uh, in, the, in the realm of political reform. And uh, I, I would say perhaps the word that best describes me is passionate um, and intentional with how I use my time to pursue passions and, like I said, hopefully make a difference. That that phrase, like intentional, really resonates with me. I just saw a post today on Instagram that was talking about be intentional with your energy. And I feel like when you kind of rewire your brain in a way to, to really focus on the things that you want to get done, and it could be as simple as like just a, a task list for the day. But when you show intent in those actions, you always seem to get like better response, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and which is, I mean, let me, first of all, for the people at home, let me read off some of your, I guess, accolades that crack. So the way that your your bio on your on your website is written up cracks me up because it's so like, okay, so here we go, ready? So for people who don't know, Nick was on Forbes 30 Under 30. He co-founded the Can Kicks Back campaign, which we're going to talk about. He has a master's degree from Georgetown University. And because of that, he was the champion of creating a $1 million social innovation and public service fund. And then at the bottom, after all these things, then it goes, and in his spare time, he enjoys hiking, photography, and travel. It's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like all these awesome things. It's like, he's the coolest guy in the world. And on his downtime, he likes to take photos. <laughs> Well, you can see some of those pictures around me. I do enjoy photography as a yeah. as a hobby. Do you miss traveling? Uh, I do. I think you know, COVID's definitely put a hamper on that. But also in the last year, being able to regain some semblance of work life balance has been nice being off the road as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's dive right into it. So Nick, for the people who don't know, what is Unite America? Uh, United America is an organization that's working to enact uh, structural political reforms to change the incentives of our elected leaders. So we work in coalition with other organizations to advance things like anti-gerrymandering, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, vote at home, uh, because all of us involved may feel differently about different particular issues, but we all agree that government ought to be serving the people and in narrowing our differences to solve big problems that we face. And so we're trying to bridge the partisan divides through electoral reform. And you can donate to the organization, right? <laughs> you sure can. Imagine that. We have a donate button on our website, which is just uniteamerica.org. And I'm, I have to say, I'm very envious that the, the pin isn't one of the options to get when you do know, I was like, damn it. I was like, I want that pin yeah, so bad. I'll get you a pin and <laughs> okay. we will hopefully uh, relaunch our site store soon, which will have some good stuff like that. Oh, I didn't know you guys had a, you said, you, you we used, used a to, oh. uh, I don't think we have it anymore, but no, I don't think so. We should get it back. Oh yeah. <laughs> a little America pins that have Unite. I love it. I love it. As the executive director of Unite America, 
what is your day-to-day -day life like? Because for people on the outside, they're seeing you on TV, you're talking about your, your um, op-eds, but I guess for those who are kind of interested in this industry, and I guess industry, this career, like what is that like for you? Well, I consider myself to be a civic entrepreneur uh, as someone who is trying to marry the best part about being entrepreneurial and sort of mm -hmm. in innovation oriented with the best parts about being community oriented and caring about public service. And so the confluence of those two things for me means how do I achieve impact by doing new and entrepreneurial things to solve problems as they exist in the world. And so mm -hmm. a large part of the day today for me is not unlike someone who is founded and is trying to scale a startup uh, in the private sector, uh, which is how do you build a team, strengthen your team, stay focused on what your mission is, demonstrate proof of concept, try and get to that next stage. And so uh, part of the job entails doing some of the public facing media stuff, but that's a very tiny part about how I spend my time. Okay. Most of my time is spent trying to figure out um, how to scale uh, an, a nascent organization into one that can have significant impact over a sustainable period of time. So like when you're going on these talk shows, are you using that as a way to almost not pitch yourself, but I guess pitch the organization to possibly get funding in a way. So like another person could see like, oh, I align with this. Let me reach out to Nick now, now that I'm aware of what this, because I had no idea what United America was until I saw you a couple months ago. Yeah. And then I fell down that rabbit hole and I was like, I think I'm a lot more independent than I realized I was beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I think the work that United America does is trying to focus people, not just on who we elect, but how we elect and changing the incentive structure of our political system through electoral reform. And that requires a paradigm shift in the way that people think about politics. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to reframe politics for people and focus them on ways that we can fix the problems that we see. And that takes a lot of public education and awareness building. And so that's one benefit for trying to get the message out there through traditional and social media channels. Um, the other benefit, frankly, is we need to raise significant resources to invest in the solutions that work. And uh, the benefit of media is trying to reach people who might be interested in investing, but also to have some third party validation that these ideas are mainstream, that there are credible news outlets willing to cover them that I think is helpful as well. Mm -hmm. Totally. How did you get into this? Because for me, I've only been really, I guess, um, invested in our political system over the past few years, because growing up, I came from a very like Republican household and all I ever saw was Fox news. So I never had any sort of outside perspective until I got out of the house and started to see other forms of media and life for you as someone who also grew up on the East coast. Cause I'm, you know, from New Jersey and you're originally from Pennsylvania. What about what was like your, the turning point in your life where it clicked and you thought, I like this and I want to pursue this and I want to change this? I think I fell into politics um, by joining student council in second grade and the rest kind of snowballing from there in the sense of what <laughs> is politics but public service and yeah. what is your community when you're in school? That's your class, right? When you get a little bit older, it's your, it's your town. As you, as I went to college and, and graduated, my perspective widened even further. And so I think I always had a sort of civic interest. Uh, mm -hmm. And then what really got me interested in political reform was meeting my mentor in politics, a guy named Doug Bailey, who was one of the first national Republican political consultants of, of his time ever. And someone who left politics when it became quite negative in the 80s and pursued other ventures, but came out of retirement when he saw our polarization taking root and the growing partisanship and decided to do something about it, which was a group called Unity 08, which tried to run a bipartisan presidential ticket in 2008. And that was my first internship and my first campaign I was a part of. And it really widened my perspective as to what the problem is and how to think outside the box of creative ways of 
solving it. Because weren't you the, the the student council president in your high school? I was, yes. Which is cool. I mean, which is like that's awesome. That like yeah. you were able to get that. It was sort interesting of, like, in student government to uh-huh. you know run camp. You know, it was inter- student council treasurer or student student government mm-hmm. president, mm-hmm. etc. Um, I became really interested in that, and I think probably was also shaped by what others were telling me. Oh, you know, you you can be this or that one day, and, and that kind of positive reinforcement. I'm sure like trends in a certain direction, which I've been self reflective of. In, in the way of being grateful to have had that from people who cared about me, teachers, my fellow students, my family, et cetera. And also realizing that it's a big part of what explains a lot of the disparities we see in politics, because especially even going back a decade or two with people seeing people who look like me as being natural political leaders and, and, and not otherwise probably contributes to a sense of like who actually goes into politics or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, look like you in the literal sense what is your background by the way like heritage wise yeah uh my family's italian um my, really okay yeah, my well triano has enough vowels in it hopefully to, <laughs> to prove it um so that just means you know we're like any other italian american family like to okay. eat a lot yell at each other talk with our hands etc yeah 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 um but it also meant, you know, culturally, just having a very close and tight knit family yeah. growing up, and uh, and to this day. Absolutely. Do you have siblings? I have an older sister, Tiffany, okay. who okay. is entrepreneurial in her own right with a maternity clothing business called Tiff Marie Maternity. So if you know pregnant women out there who who are in the market, <laughs> look it up. Um, and she now lives in Nashville. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, cool. That's I mean, that's awesome. It's funny because. I've been you know, doing so much research on you for this interview, and I don't know if this is intentional or not. That's the word of the day, intentional. You do a really good job of keeping the focus on you and not so much your personal life, which I admire that a lot. I think that's why I'm like always inspired by anything you ever say is because it's always coming from who Nick is and not his personal surroundings, but you're like, like you're almost like standing alone. Like I had no idea you had siblings because you give off this energy of just, you know who you are, you know what you want, and there's no outside influence changing that. And that's cool. Like that's really, really cool to like see. Yeah. So just, just I appreciate that. It probably reflects (laughs) a discomfort I have of making anything (laughs) about me personally, but also coming to terms with the idea that sometimes I I personally can be a good vehicle for the things that Mm -hmm. I care about. And of course, that was something I came to grips with in deciding to run for office early on because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you discover when you want to get elected to something, you probably should be willing to talk about yourself. Totally. Which, okay, so you brought it up. Let's, let's hop onto that. So in 2014, you ran for Congress. You, for the people at home and people listening, you did one of the most creative ways to run your campaign. So you utilized the internet. You made videos on more than a weekly basis talking about the, the platform you were running on, parts about even the federal government that you would want to change, not just even like the local area. And it fe- to me, it spoke volumes because it showed how much you actually cared because it's clearly you were doing that on your own time. It wasn't, you weren't in a studio. You didn't have a whole team behind you. It was very like, you're well-educated on these topics and you knew what you're talking about and you wanted to show people like, this is what you're voting for. So when, because this is what I don't know, what was the decision behind running? How long did it take you to get to that? I'm going to pull the trigger and I'm going to run for Congress. And um, yeah, let's start there because then we'll go, we'll go through the rest. Sure. Well, the backstory to my running was that I didn't expect to, to do that, or at least so soon in my career or in my life. But I was at the time studying in, in Washington, D.C., running a nonprofit that was focused on trying to bring solutions forward on federal budget issues and our national debt, seeing how the Congress was incapable of doing that because of how dysfunctional and divided we are and realizing that it was my congressman from back where I'm from in Pennsylvania that so exemplified the problem in our politics today. And when I realized that I come from a gerrymandered district um, with closed primaries, uh, with low voter turnout, the congressman was only representing a handful of 
voters, not the entire district. And he was a shoo-in for re-election, but for anyone challenging him who wasn't a Democrat, who would never win in that district. And so I, I for a while, had um, a belief that every young person as a kind of civic rite of passage ought to do a year of national service in some way, whether that's between high school or college or college and, and their career. And I decided to consider running for office for a year as an independent as a way of trying to give back and, and make a difference, maybe show that there's another path forward in our political system and use the idea of running for office to engage with thousands of people to educate them about the political system and some of these issues. So yeah. after the government shutdown in 2013 happened, that was the catalyzing event that that made me say to myself, uh, maybe this is the right time to try this. That makes so much sense. I mean, I'm lucky to live in a very liberal city where would I like to be on the city council? Sure. Do I feel like my presence is needed to make the change that I would want to see? No. But at the same time, I had the same mindset as you of just why not? Why not? You know? Um, and it's funny because when people ask me, like, I'm like, well, what, like what platforms would you run on? You know? And I'm like super into getting the homeless off the street and into housing. Like those are the kind of things I want to run for. But that's not really a huge problem where I live, which kind of is like stinks is like all these, you know, um, like hit points. I'm like, I'm going to go up there and they're like, Sam, there's affordable housing down the street they live in. I'm like, OK, well, how about the parking problem? Like uh, that's handled. You know? yeah. So for you, it's really cool that you saw the problem and you yeah. were in an area where like this is this is it. like this is it. Um, so circling back to the fact that you were once Republican and then switched to independent, I have to ask, did you affiliate with the Republican Party because of the environment you grew up in? And then you realize like, oh, I don't believe in a lot of the stuff. Or was it like, oh, and you actually do believe in all those, a lot of those values more than the Democratic Party, but independent just sat better with you? I, to be honest with you, don't know what exactly influenced my early political beliefs other than okay. I had an early perspective and I kind of got immersed mm -hmm. in it in, in being Republican. It's not like mm -hmm. I had diehard Republican parents. In fact, they were pro voters uh, in, the, in the 90s, which I think... Mm you know, foretold a sort of independent streak that runs through my family. But of course, I grew up <laughs> in a conservative um, and Republican small town in a pretty rural county. And so that that may have had something to do with it. But my perspective evolved over time, just as my perspective widened in, especially in um, going to college. And I began to appreciate that one side does not sort of have monopoly on on a perspective on any particular problem and, and became more independent minded um, as mm -hmm. a result. But what catalyzed my leaving the Republican Party was, again, what happened with that government shutdown. And so I just couldn't stay affiliated to a party <laughs> to be more interested in performance and theatrics and actual policy. Okay. Absolutely. And it's unfortunate because as someone who is a registered Democrat for now, um, I feel the same way that like now there's just there's so much drama and theatrics in our government, even now within the Democratic Party. And it's really, really hard to be around people. Like, for instance, I joined the Hoboken Democrat Committee and very quickly. This is another reason why I was like, I think I'm a lot more independent than I thought <laughs> was because like in those first few meetings, there's a lot of like uh, just like a lot of like really like really far deep liberal talk that even I was like, that's crazy. I just don't believe in everything that fits under the democratic umbrella. Yeah. Some people can agree. Like I have friends who, and I'm sure you do too, who it's like, yeah, I didn't support the Trump administration, but there were some things that weren't bad. The face of the party was not great, but underneath it, they were doing some, some good things. You have to yeah. acknowledge that. <laughs> Listen, there are more independents than there are <laughs> Democrats and Republicans. And a big reason why is that people don't have totally consistent views with one party or the other. And they, and they like to think for themselves rather than having some, you know, team red or team blue tell them what to think. 100%, which we will get to that later, too, in your uh, 2019 speech um, at your old high school. But so going back to you, you running for Congress... Mr. Mr. Lovely Tom Marino was the incumbent, and I 
again, he's, I didn't know who he really was until I was doing research on you. And the more I did research, the more I did research on him. And I was like, oh my God, I really wish Nick had totally just like annihilated him in that election. Because in 2017, Trump nominated him to be the drug czar. And then he had to revoke that nomination because they found out he was supporting a bill that made it hard for the DEA to policy opioids. What was that like to go up to up against someone that you knew was so morally wrong? And then also to give you guys background, Nick would go and like be like, hi, why won't you debate me? Please debate me. And it was like the best video of you like, okay, it eventually happened. Me. And that's probably the moment I'm most proud of the entire <laughs> year was being able to share the stage with the incumbent yeah. congressperson as a 24 year old and take him to task on every policy uh, mm -hmm. and his approach to politics, which I disagreed with. And mm -hmm. It also was just a humbling experience that as a citizen, you can you can do that. You can go out and get the signatures. You can get your name on the ballot. And in, and then in this country, you know, you have to earn every vote just like the other candidate does. And so that's what although I lost that race, it gave me still some hope in the system that we can change it, because at the end of the day, yeah. we still have the power of the vote and the power to you know run for office. But I would say that he was a giant motivator for me because he did represent what I feel was wrong. The issue that you spoke of was the fact that most of his campaign money came from special interest groups trying to influence policy on the committees that he sat, one of which was the pharmaceutical industry. And he did support a bill that made it harder to crack down on the opioid crisis, which struck our, my district, my hometown, and still does, you know, quite hard. And so is there any more, or is there any more, uh, you know, Case in point, Ammo or yeah, 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 yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. The system than the incumbent congressman taking stances on issues that was literally killing people yeah. uh, that he was supposed to be representing. Mm -hmm. I my my biggest pain when it comes to these kind of situations is all like I'll watch I'll watch the news and I get so mad. I'm like, why was why would someone want to do a job that they're not doing the job? And then I remember ego, power, money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, I guess you and I are very morally sane people where I'm like, if I'm not going to do a job, I'm not going to be doing the job. Like, I'm not going to want to run for that position. And and for you, what's crazy is that even though Tom, he got like 100,000 votes, you got over 22,000 votes, Nick. Like, that's crazy. Like you said in your speech, you're like, we didn't light one candle tonight. We lit over 20,000. And seeing those people's responses to what you were standing for, it just like made me so happy that, again, there's people like you who are doing these things. Yeah, I appreciate that, Sam. I would say that what I felt good about was fulfilling the purpose of why I ran, which was to be an outlet for people to express their dissatisfaction with the system. And we got about 13% of the vote in the congressional district, which is the most competitive three-way independent U.S. House race in a couple of decades. And we did that by running a pretty bootstrapped campaign. So I was, yeah. I was proud by how far we got, but also dismayed by seeing up close just the enormous barriers to what it would take someone to actually cross the finish line who weren't running with any particular party. And that's informed all of my work since 2014. And mm -hmm. that's the story of you know my involvement in, in politics, which is try something, likely fail at it, iterate, <laughs> solve for the last barrier that you faced. And it's a journey, of course, and I'm, I'm still on. Question, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, would you ever run again in any sort of capacity? Well, for me, listen, my decision to run in the first place was I cared about an issue that I thought I could make a difference on and had an opportunity um, to do that. It's about being impact-driven. And mm -hmm. the truth is, these days, I feel lucky that I did not win that election because I don't know what I would have done as one out of 435 people in a very broken institution. I feel really so true impact that I'm able to make today in supporting and running an organization that is supporting dozens of candidates for office and changing the structures of our political system. So mm -hmm. I'd be hard pressed to see where an avenue for public office may provide greater impact than what I'm doing today. But uh, we'll see where life takes me. Totally. That reminds me, have you ever seen the show Designated Survivor? A couple episodes. 
Okay, but so my roommate just got me into it, and the 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 main character who play now is the president. He's independent. Yeah. So it's so fun. Yeah. So it's so funny to see like I've never seen that played out on television before. Right. So I can see the 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 fantasy of like what would it actually be like if we had a president who is completely independent? And everyone's losing their minds. Imagine that. I would just love that because circling toward your. 2019 speech at your high school one of the things you said is if we choose to rise above it we must start on a personal level and not a political one we must begin to see each other as americans first before we are liberals or conservatives democrats or republicans and i believe that is like what should be on your tombstone and also in that speech you go into a lot of like these really great mlk quotes he who is devoid of power to forgive is devoid of power to love which is amazing and then also a twist is that you know the darkness cannot drive out darkness only light can do that um did yeah. you make up that okay not me but i was happy to no yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> but did you did you make up that quote about the candle or was that, that someone else's? no quote? it's taken from a chinese proverb actually okay. and the proverb okay. is uh something to the effect of it's better to light a single candle than curse at the darkness mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. you know, gets the idea you know you know we can be despondent about our political system mm-hmm. and just say it's it's corrupt it's dysfunctional you know it's yeah. horrible and not do anything about it but yeah. it's better to light a single candle in the darkness than than just a curse at it and so for me that has 100%. been a somewhat quixotic journey but one that is rooted in let's try to do something about it so as part of unite america what are your go-to tactics so let's say you're in a grocery store right and you're in the middle of a conflict and it's two people one from the far left and one from the far right and your task is to find a way for those two people to find a middle ground. What are your go-to tactics for s- to get people to see the middle ground? I would start with what not to do, which is probably the go-to tactic of most <laughs> people when, tr- when debating someone, which is how can I prove that the other person is wrong? And how can I even use like facts and data to do that? It doesn't work. No one wants to be wrong. I'm guilty of that. Right, so in fact, when people... <laughs> You know, uh, we, we, it'll force the other person to double down rather than uh, to actually, uh, you know, change their position. So I would say a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One is that you want to take yourself out of the political context and into the personal, like see the other person as a human being more than whatever their policy or political position is that they're communicating. Mm-hmm. Then I would say, listen to understand, try and figure out what is informing not just their stance on the issue, but how that how their perspective was shaped that helped them arrive at that stance. And then third, I would say an effective tactic is to ask questions like, what do you think about folks who see it this way? Or how would you respond to this set of alternative data that, that would point you into a different direction? And so I just think we're we're oftentimes too quick to want to shut down the other side and present our own narrative without understanding who they are, without understanding their perspective, uh, and without actually listening to them. Absolutely. I I have been in many of situations, just I guess with who I'm friends with, and then who they're friends with, I always seem to find myself in positions lately where um, it's a very mixed group of political affiliation. And I do, do my best to just say facts and not opinions. Um, and I do have a bad tendency of giving opinions, thinking they're facts and then to me like, no, but so for instance, yesterday, this is a good example. Um, I was at my friend's birthday party and I don't know how I got brought up, but someone brought up like, what's your political party? I'm like, that's a weird question to ask someone when you're all drinking. I'm like this alcohol and politics do not mix. What are we doing here? And, and the guy made a comment of like, he was like, if you say you're liberal, then like, I'm out of here. And I was like, well. I'm not, but I have tendencies, you know, the more he was talking, the more I realized that maybe the reason why he believes what he believes in is environmental and not actual, I don't know, I almost said physical, that's not the right word, but um, like actuality. And I'm like, I bet you had that guy grown up in a different environment and wasn't surrounded by all that, he wouldn't believe that. But I can't fault him for that. All I can do, like you said, is give my thoughts, listen to him. And that's it. It shouldn't be my job to try to change someone's mind. 
So I, to- I totally Yeah, I think, and I think instead of just stating what we believe, it's powerful when we say why we believe it. What are the underlying values behind it? Because that's where a lot of common ground can reveal itself in that we do share a lot of values as people. We also share a lot of desired outcomes. We just may have different ways of getting there. And that's not to paper over the idea that there are significant differences out there. And there are people on the extremes, right, who are beyond the idea of them, you know, responding to new information or changing their positions. And the goal at the end of the day isn't always to get someone to change their position. But if we understood each other better and approached arguments in good faith, I think we'd end up in a better spot. Totally, totally, totally. Uh, everything you're saying is just like resonating so much. So I'm so used to having conversations and having to like elaborate, but like you're so well-spoken that everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, and period, that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> so what would you like to see in American politics over the next four years? But specifically, what are you anticipating on happening in the special elections in, what is it, already like two years or for now? Which is cr- not even, I mean... A year and a half, really, which is nuts to think about. I expect we'll see what we have seen for the last 10 years, which is a pendulum swing. Uh, People, voters expressing their dissatisfaction by punishing whichever party happens to be in power. And so it wouldn't surprise me for Republicans to pick up seats in Congress, potentially take back the House. That would be consistent with historical patterns here. Um, but the downside is I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic in the short term, but optimistic in the long term. In the short term, I think we'll con- continue to see sort of this doom loop of polarization take place where we're in an accelerating kind of self-reinforcing cycle of division because that's what all the incentives are. But over the long term, I hope that we will take on challenges of the dysfunction in our political process that produces those, in- dis- uh, those bad incentives. And we'll take on the fact that information systems and the rise of disinformation and partisan echo chambers online. I mean, these are problems that are getting more salience now because people are seeing how they're actually not just bad for governance, they're actually a threat to democracy, as we saw on January 6th. And so as more people lean into those solutions, I'm hoping that we will find a way out of this mess because our country has done that before. Heck, we fought a civil war. So it's been worse. Uh, and we, I think, you know, it's important to keep in that in mind, not, you know, present history just as some idealized version of what we think the country uh, should be. But our best days can still be before us if we get serious about tackling these challenges. Totally. Do you ever get exhausted when you think that um, growing up, we would read so much in history books? But do you ever get exhausted? You're like, we're living too much history right now. Like, there's too many things happening. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I caught myself this week. I didn't listen live to Biden's first address to Congress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, as a political junkie, I I felt like I violated some moral code. And I just realized (laughs) there is too much happening. There is a bit of exhaustion about it. And also, you know, uh, as an aside, it's also good to know, like, nothing crazy is going to happen to that speech. You don't need to watch it tonight. So (laughs) that's that's part of what was a little relieving, too. Okay, so one of the things you did recently, which I want to ask about, which I talked about before we um, started recording, is you were on a very early, early morning talk show, which is ironically called Way Too Early with Casey Hunt on MSNBC. And I saw it on YouTube and I thought, great, another Nick interview. Awesome. But then I look at the bottom right corner and I see that the episode aired at 530 Eastern Standard Time. And then I remember that you live in Colorado and I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) this guy got up at 330 in the morning to go on national television. How does his brain function that early? Yeah, I would say it's hard to get uh, media attention for some of these process ideas and how do we fix politics because you're not going on television to scream at the other side and it doesn't make for as great a ratings. And so in the context of like, it's hard to get media for fixing democracy, you kind of take what you'll get. And if that means getting up at 3 a.m. to get on MSNBC, you know, that doesn't bother me so much. Um, But the good point, and they love you over there anyway. It's like they love and not 5 a.m. I actually went back to sleep after that and got a couple more. I good. had a feeling like I, I was like, he definitely <laughs> went to bed after that. He was like, and good night. <laughs> but it was a good interview. Because so one of the one of the things that, that um, 
is I guess like not going viral, but is like the quote from that interview is you were talking about um, how our primaries have got to go. And I thank you so much for informing me so much about that because I, I knew I, I knew in my mind what the like what needed to happen, but you're the person who like put it into words. So for people who don't know, only 10% of eligible voters in the US cast ballots in primaries, effectively electing 83% of Congress, leaving us with ideological extremists, partisan purists, and conspiracy theorists. If that ain't the truth, I don't know. Yeah, it's one of the things that doesn't get enough attention, which is the fact that most members of Congress are not elected in the general elections that most of us participate in. These districts are so Democratic or so Republican that the primary is the only election that matters, which is bad because very few people participate or even can participate. Where I'm from in Pennsylvania, as an independent, you don't get to participate in the primary. More than 10 million independents are in the same boat. So you wind up that disenfranchise a lot of people, but also distort the representation that we get. And I use Marjorie Taylor Greene as an example, someone who's gotten a lot of attention for being on that conspiracy theory wing of the Republican Party. She only got eight and a half percent of eligible voters to support her in the primary. So if we want to change the outcomes of the system, we have to change the process. And there are states that have reforms that we're supporting that, that could do that. So what would your um, fantasy look like if we did completely restructure the primaries? Would So would one of your solutions possibly be that, you know, I mean, universal mail-in ballot where like it comes to the House because the reason why I say that is one of the things I'm very guilty of, this is like pre-SAM into politics, is I would get those primary ballots in the mail and I would just throw them out because I didn't, I didn't understand the weight of what right. was in there. I was like, I, like, I don't care about this person running my school district or whatever. And, and then like, lo and behold, I'm like, oh my God, I could have elected unintentionally. Me right. not voting it is, is giving a vote. A, vote. a vote. People don't yeah. truly appreciate that. Yeah, I think the, the short of it is that you replace the two party primaries with a single nonpartisan primary. So every voter gets to participate and all the candidates do as well. Mm-hmm. The top vote getters go to the general election and you can rank them in order of preference. So whomever wins does so with majority support. And the advantage that this system would have in addition to enfranchising the entire electorate is it forces the candidates in the general election to compete on their ideas and not just their identity, because it's not just a zero sum red versus blue uh, election. They actually have to distinguish themselves by what they want to do and and where they stand on the issues. And I think that would have a very positive impact on our politics. Cool. So you said two keywords over the last uh, part of the interview that I actually had written down for you to explain to the people at home, because even I have a hard time understanding the true meaning of it. Can you explain zero sum, like what the definition of zero sum politics is and the doom loop? So people understand like the severity of these two things in our political system. Yeah. So the doom loop is a phrase I've borrowed from Lee Drutman, who's a political scientist and wrote a book uh, similarly titled, which is the idea that there's a, you can imagine a loop that accelerates in nature when we're not just fighting each other over policy, but we actually think winning is all that matters. And so each party is trying to extract some advantage by changing the rules in their own favor, which leads to the other party turning up the heat a little bit and doing the same thing when they're in power. And that loop continues to spiral until we've destroyed our institutions. And so Republicans want to put, want to block Democrats from appointing a Supreme Court justice in Obama's last year. Well, now Democrats are talking about adding new justices to the Supreme Court. That's an example of the, of the loop. Um, Zero-sum politics is essentially that in order for me to win, you have to lose. It's zero-sum in in nature. And so this often comes to pass in Congress because the minority party won't want to contribute anything to a solution if the majority party is going to get any credit for it in the next election. They'd rather see nothing get done. And so that kind of zero-sum mentality is a way that politicians use to drive votes and get elected. But leads to very bad 
policy and outcomes for the, for the people they're supposed to be representing. If you go back half a century, there were there was a lot of more ideological diversity within both parties. You had liberal and conservative Democrats and liberal and conservative Republicans. And issues like civil rights helped to realign our politics such that each party became more homogenous in terms of their ideology. And so now you only pretty much have conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats to varying flavors on, on both sides. But the real danger of what's happening is that because there are fewer kind of cross-cutting coalitions within both parties, our identity is stacked up so that if you're a Democrat, you're probably also progressive. You probably also live in an urban area. You probably also shop at Whole Foods. And if you're a conservative Republican, it means this list of things. And so every disagreement of policy becomes a disagreement of identity. And we're wired as being tribal creatures. We see the world as uh, us versus them, which makes it very hard and much more difficult to find common ground when you don't have any identities that kind of cut across these political coalitions. So that's why Drutman and others have made the case for a more pluralistic democracy where we can have more parties and more competition. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the binary, yes, no, black and white, zero sumness that I was talking about before. One of the things I actually am really interested in talking to you about, and it's funny because again, going back to you, you know, hide, not hiding your personal life, but just doing a good job of keeping it private and personal is the fact that you're an openly gay man. And, and that is really inspiring for me to look at because you're just who you are. You're doing your thing. You're doing good for the world. What I want to know is, were there any fears for you of what that could do for your career? Because unfortunately, we all live with that. Of like what it would do for your career when you did decide to come out. Um, if you feel comfortable sharing when you came out and what that experience was like and um, how it's been almost if there's been any sort of like liberating, joyful experiences in your career now that, you know, you're in a happy relationship and you're doing you're like your career is taking off and like what what that's all like for you. Yeah, so I would say um, I came out to myself and to my family and close friends when I was 23 uh, which was okay. earlier the same year that I also decided to run for office. And mm -hmm. especially going back to 2014, it seems recent, but it is another world ago. Culturally, it was in a much different time. Um, that's something I had to contend with because I knew mm -hmm. that um, it was not an asset, by, but a liability in actually running for office, especially in the district that I was. But I told myself I would only run under two conditions, which is one, I would be truthful to myself and others. And two, I would only take positions that I've sincerely held or felt at the time. Mm -hmm. And while I didn't run that race as an out gay candidate, in fact, I felt I was already pushing a couple boulders up the hill in 2024. <laughs> yeah. um, I just wasn't quite ready for it. I was prepared to mm -hmm. answer the question. And it was something that I even rehearsed with myself before I decided to get in to see if I would be be ready to do that. Uh, and I also, you know, was an advocate for marriage equality at a time where that wasn't the easiest, you know, position to do. But again, that was part of my criteria for running. But I would say that happened in a context in which I personally was getting more comfortable with that side of myself, which as anyone who's been down that path knows, it's a, it's a journey. It doesn't happen yeah. all at once. And the idea of it gets better, which was the campaign around all of this, you know, a few years ago, just rings true because that's been my experience over the last, you know, um, close to 10 years or so. And uh, the gratifying part about it is it's never been the part of my identity that I put my foot fo forward on. And it doesn't need to be. And now when I'm comfortable sharing that part of who I am with others, um, it is received in such a gracious and positive way. And it's just not an issue that preoccupies me as it totally did, you know, uh, back then. So the reason why I ask is that I, even to this day, I came out when I was 18 and, um, and so I, I turned 30 next month. So I've been out for a very long time, but I still find myself in situations where I finally received the approval of someone that I'm like, either is someone I look up to or just as a colleague, you know, 
And then there's that little voice in the back of my mind that thinks and says, but would they still give you their approval if they knew that you were gay? Yeah. And that's unfortunate that as as men in 2021, we still have to live like that because even though we've come so far, we we only like we've only come so much. I and mean, I'm really happy to hear that nothing has ever gone wrong in your career when you decided to just to be who you are, which is amazing. Per, per, you know, I, I, uh, perhaps it did and I'm not aware of it, but I also <laughs> in the sense of like, and I don't give a crap what other people think at a certain point and you will yeah. accept whatever yeah. the consequences are to being mm -hmm. your true self. And it, it took me a while to arrive there, but I feel comfortable kind of operating in that space yeah. with deep appreciation for people who had to take this journey at a much different, uh, much different time. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the first people I went to talk to about running was a civic leader where I'm from in my hometown of Milford, who's our current mayor uh, named Sean Strube. And he ran for Congress in his early 30s, uh, 1990, as the, one of the first openly gay and the first HIV positive candidates for, for Congress. And I so admired how he has made that part of who he is part of his advocacy and the difference that he's made. And uh, it meant a lot to me for him to be one of the first you know, two people who was encouraging of my entering the political space and also, um, you know, the first one of the first supporters I had in my campaign back then. I had no idea that I had. That's so crazy. I'll have to look into him. I had no idea that was yeah, there's a great documentary um, that he is in. I think it's called uh, My Friend, the Mayor. He's an extraordinary um, Okay. leader and activist and anyway he's a great memoir that's out and it, and it has for me put in perspective of um uh, of gay men who've had to experience a lot greater difficulties you know decades ago uh than we do today love it i love it oh god nick i'm so happy that we were having this conversation what what advice would you give to someone who wants to get involved in politics uh, it's the same piece of advice I've given for a while, which is just to find your passion, like find the issue that really speaks to you, find the why of politics, because mm -hmm. politics as an end to itself, power as an end to itself mm -hmm. is not a great path to take. Politics as a means to solving the problem that you really care about, the difference that you want to make will, I think, be the most fulfilling and um, and the best path for everyone else, too. Uh for someone to take. So find your passion and, the, yeah. if, you know, expose yourself to a lot of different ideas and issues uh, as a way of getting there. Cool. I also want to go back really quick to go to talk about the speech you gave at your high school, because um, I just have to say, and you can say this happened or not, but it, had I been in the audience watching that and not because I didn't come out till like the last week of high school for me. Had I been in the audience and watched that speech, I would have gone home and came out to my parents because that speech was so inspiring because you're such a, like, like a rock star to me and you're so humble and it's so impressive that you can just like the way that you like articulate your words and it, it makes anyone want to be a good person. So I just want to say, like, I hope there was someone in that audience who was a closeted gay kid afraid of like, what am I, what's my life, like, what's my life going to be like? And they saw you and they're like, I can be like Nick, you know? Well, thanks for that, Sam. I, and to give a little context, this, the speech that you're referring to is uh, maybe a year and a half ago when I mm -hmm. went back to my high school uh, mm -hmm. after a long time and was inducted into one of the honor societies mm -hmm. and uh, the topic in my speech was just be kind to others and weaving the personal and the political uh, in, into that. And I shared uh, a bit about, it was my first sort of public coming out. Like I never really announced to an audience or yeah. on whatever, like I'm gay, but <laughs> this in this speech because it was part of an atonement really that when I was in high school, I wasn't the one who was consistently and always kind to others. I, I saw, I see myself now as, Nick, actually, in some ways, you were part of the problem in, in yeah. building yourself up by taking someone else down. And mm -hmm. uh, I realized that there's a different way and there's a better way. And that had an impact on me at the time and on others. And I wanted to find a, a positive message to bring back and sort of full circle and coming back to my high school. And so 
Um, that, that was the speech that I made with an encouragement to people, uh, going back to the last line I had in my high school graduation speech was, which was above all else to thine own self be true, a line out of Shakespeare's Hamlet. And it took me a while to actually live those words, but I thought that to your point, if I can come back and share that story with people who are still, you know, juniors and seniors in high school with a lot to learn a lot looking forward, perhaps that was the best use of the words that I could share. Just so amazing. Like, God, so amazing. What brings you joy? Um, that's a really good question. I, if, if it is in a period of time, which I can take some personal time, it's, it's solo travel. Like I, I love just going to a new place, immersing myself in a different culture, uh, and kind of being in a place where, you know, no one else knows me or knows that I'm there. And I get to kind of observe this cool world that I haven't visited before. And, uh, get to spend time, you know, taking pictures and uh, doing some reading. So that that brings me the most joy, and I try and do that uh, once or twice a year now. Mm-hmm. Because you just you just went on vacation too recently, which was really nice. Yeah, it was sort of a remote work week um, from Mexico <laughs> for my boyfriend's birthday, and yeah. uh, it was good. It'll be better when yeah. we both can actually take take the time off. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> just work from somewhere. Yeah. But won't exactly. a good week. All right, Nick. So before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, tell the audience, you know, where to find you, where they can find any information about Unit America or any sort of upcoming TV. I almost said performances, not performances, TV appearances <laughs> <laughs> that you will be having. Um, I would say this, which is that I appreciated this time talking to you, Sam, and want to do this interview because you are someone who just recently quit your job to pursue a passion of yours and is being entrepreneurial about that. Mm -hmm. And so the thought that I would leave people with in looking at who you are and your story and what you're doing in both me, two different industries, two different paths, Mm -hmm. but find your passion. Don't be afraid to take a risk if you are able Mm -hmm. and do it in a way where you're contributing kindness to others in the world. And I feel like, um, that's hopefully a, a theme of this hour that um, will maybe inspire a person or two out there. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And what is, is it uniteamerica.org? Is that where people? Yes. Okay. That's the website. Cool. Perfect. All right, Nick. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Shmi Show. Good to be here with you at <laughs> Shmi. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye, Nick. Have a good day. That's a terribly awkward way of ending that. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to end it, whatever.